This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Change your perception so that you can change your own reality. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And I am very excited for our incredible panel today with two of my good friends returning to the roundup, the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, welcome back. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Ron? <laughs> Great. You it's know, good it, to be here in person in studio. It's good to be with you. I think my mother was worried that I hadn't been on the roundup in a while. So. Hi, Lucy's mom. <laughs> <laughs> and making his roundup debut, Scott Tranter. Scott is the former director of data science for Marco Rubio's Run for President. He is also an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. Scott, not many people can do both of those things. Yeah. And I graduated <laughs> from that school with a business degree. They brought me back to teach in the school I did not graduate from. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Revenge on the nerds. Exactly. Oh, I love it. On this week's roundup, first, this week's J6 committee hearings recounting the West Wing meetings about stealing an election and Trump's weakening support among Republican voters. Then we'll look at the top issues driving voters heading toward the fall midterms. We're also going to talk about the Democrats boosting election deniers. Yes, I said that. I did not stutter. The Democrats boosting election deniers. We're going to look at Democrats' gamble to support avid Trump supporter and election denier Carrie Lake in the Arizona Republican primary for governor. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we'll discuss a Politico op-ed with a suggestion of who Democrats could run against Tucker Carlson in a 2024 presidential election. Now, it's way early, and we should just say this right now. This is not, this is not serious prognosticating, but there's some interesting stuff in this op-ed uh, that I that I think is worth talking about. It's proof you can get anything published. You can get anything published. Again, <laughs> that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast filled with strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On Tuesday, January 6th committee held another public hearing, this time focused on the connection between Trump, his former advisors, and members of the far-right militia groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. But the most explosive story about the plot to steal the presidency this week didn't actually come from the J6 committee. The huge scoop came from Mother Jones when they published leaked audio of Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon, outlining how Trump would declare victory on election night. Here's that clip. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in mail. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. We're going to have Antifa crazy, the media crazy, the courts are crazy, and Trump's going to be sitting there mocking, tweeting shit out, you lose. <laughs> I'm the winner. I'm the king. And he'll be all over. He'll be, he'll be going, where's Hunter? Is Hunter on a crack pipe? I mean, no, he'll be, because then it doesn't matter. Remember, here's the thing. After then, Trump never has to go to a voter again. He's going to fire Ray, the FBI director, and fire the scene. He's going to say, fuck you. How about that? Because he's never going to, he's, he's done his last election. Oh, he's going to be off the chain. He's going to be crazy. Also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm yeah, doing the court, uh, agree. I'm directing the attorney general mm-hmm. to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. He's not going out easy. If, Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. So even before election night, Bannon and company were setting into motion the plan that eventually resulted in the attack on the Capitol. The committee revealed evidence that Trump's call for supporters to march to the Capitol on January 6th may have been planned in advance. They also showed text messages between rally organizer Kylie Jane Kramer and my pillow guy Mike Lindell saying that the president would unexpectedly, in air quotes, tell his supporters to march to the Capitol. She even put unexpectedly in quotes. <laughs> the, the, the highly anticipated videotaped interview of former White House counsel Pat Cipollone was featured in the hearing. Cipollone spoke with investigators last Friday. He was also one of the six witnesses who detailed an Oval Office meeting from December where Trump allies and White House lawyers argued over plans to overturn the election. And we've got a clip of that. Let's just listen to the cut of his testimony that the committee played on Tuesday. I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Flynn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people who were in the Oval Office. Explain why. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, the overstock person, I, I've never been to who this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him and I said, Who are you? And he told me, I don't think. I don't think any of these people were providing the president with good advice. So I I, I didn't understand how they had gotten in. I was asking, like, are you claiming the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans and whomever else? And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram that supposedly showed IP addresses all over the world. And I speak, who who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. You're both tech founders. <laughs> <laughs> okay. are, are, 
Our Nest thermostat, the real like, national security vulnerability that we ought to be talking about? You should be talking about the smart fridges. Let me tell you. <laughs> like, is that where democracy is going to fail? Is that, is that where we need to be headed? Okay, so I, I want to I hear both of your reactions to the testimony this week and like what you were thinking as most of this is playing out because a lot of it is sort of jaw-dropping. But the thing that stood out to me was not not even the J6 stuff, but the, but the Bannon clip because it, listening to that, it was like I was transported back to where we were in 2020 at the Lincoln Project in Park City, like two months before the election, that conversation is exactly what we were having, except on the other side. Like that's, we knew exactly what they were going to do. And we're like, holy shit, this train is coming down the tracks. He's going to do it on election night or the day after because of the way the votes are going to come in. We started talking about it on the podcast. And so hearing Steve Bannon say, oh yeah, that's exactly what he's going to do. Like it was chilling. So anyway, Lucy, you go first. Well, I mean, cross-partisan groups who care about democracy were doing war games, you know, scenarios ahead of 2020 because everyone saw this coming. It's kind of funny now because uh, I think never Trumpers were really vindicated on January 6th. But now I sometimes will have conversations with people who are like, well, that was really bad, but that would never happen again. It's like, hey, I was one of the people telling you something like this was going to happen and you didn't believe me then. So maybe believe me now. No, I think that it's reflective of something that was very pernicious in the Trump machinery and, and really has spilled over to the Republican machinery overall, which is a by any means necessary attitude. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked on the podcast before about Mike Lee's uh tweets about like democracy isn't the point, you know. Uh, and and here's an anecdote for you from 2020, a, a bit before the times you were having those conversations in Park City. When I was running the kamikaze, kum, <laughs> <laughs> masochistic, uh, yet idealistic um, campaign of former Tea Party Congressman Joe Walsh in his primary bid about against Donald Trump in 2020. And there were a couple of other folks doing that, most notably former governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld. Uh, we we got into that race in August of 2019, we're trucking longs right before the first impeachment, actually kind of picking up some steam. Did we think we were going to beat Donald Trump? No. Suddenly, out of the blue, Republican primaries started getting canceled. They were just being canceled, which, yes, it's true that that can happen in an election year where there is no contested presidential reelect. But this was you had two former congressmen and a former governor challenging the sitting president. So it was very odd. And I got a call from a reporter who was on the the very niche Republican presidential primary beat. And he said, hey, I have to tell you this. I just had an off-the-record briefing from people from the RNC and some of the kind of Bannon types. And he said, and they gave us a presentation about how part of their 2020 strategy, that it's very, very important that no other Republican get any, any electoral votes or any, any votes in the primary stage at all. And so they have a strategy of canceling primaries. This oh is coming God. from— the White House, and the Trump campaign. And we knew at the time that, for instance, people like Hogan Gidley, there's a name you haven't heard in a while, nope. a, a Trump um, best, a, a, you know, a Trump lackey and a former executive director of the Republican Party in South Carolina was making calls to state directors all over the country saying, you know, you need to cancel, the, you need to cancel these oh, primaries. And so they were all getting canceled. And 
it's not the same as that, but it just reflects something that is endemic to the Trump culture. And now the RNC culture is Trump culture, in my opinion, which is, again, by any means necessary, it doesn't matter. We to hell with norms, and and we're going to win this, whether we win it the right way or the wrong way. Victory at all costs, and the costs be damned. Like the cost, including democracy, be damned. Scott, what did you think about the? What did you think about what, everything we saw? And th- and then after this, we're going to get into like, is it working? What impact is it going to have? We'll talk about the numbers, but just you personally as a you know. Well, it was interesting because I had an interesting seat for that. I was head of the race call team for Decision Desk that week, and some of the decision desk clients were Huffington Post, Newsmax, and a whole host of other campaigns, private interest, you know, news outlets. And so we kind of knew what Steve Bannon said roughly was correct. You know, that's how it was going to go. That's how the voting patterns were based on how COVID did ABEV and all that kind of stuff. So ABEV, absentee ballot, absentee, early absentee voting. ballot, early voting. So like it, it, you know, like for instance, Decision Desk called the race for President Biden Friday morning around 830 in the morning. And that was at the moment that President Biden overtook President, former President Trump in Pennsylvania. In other words, we knew it was going to happen. We mm-hmm. just didn't know how long Philadelphia was going to take to count. In other words, up until Friday morning, Donald Trump was winning in the state of Pennsylvania. And we all knew that was going to happen we because all knew that of was gonna happen when the votes are counted. Because of how the votes are counted and when they're counted, those types of things. So, I, you know, it was one of those things, the race, and I'm sure I'm going to get some hate tweets or something like that. The race actually happened how the model said it was going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Biden had, you know, a mid 80s chance of winning and he didn't barely win. He got the same amount of roughly the same amount of electoral votes that Donald Trump got in 2016. So like and and the states went the way we thought they would go. Um, And some states went more for him than not. Like Georgia wasn't wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily in place. So I think one of these things, when you take a step back at it, like it it happened the way it was supposed to happen. It was forecast to happen and cue the hate tweets. But yeah. It took longer than I think everyone expected, except for us. Like, I remember our team, we had our war room. We knew we were going to be there for a week. Yeah. We were telling everybody, yeah. you're going to be there for a week. It's going to take a little while. It's going to be crazy. But I don't think anyone was prepared for what it was, especially, you know, you look at what happened election night. Like, Decision Desk called Florida for President Trump about 8.15 on Tuesday night, on election night. And that was the one everyone's like, well, if Trump wins Florida, then it's going to take a little while. It, it was pretty obvious when those first Miami numbers dropped, like President Trump was going to win that one. Yeah. And then that then it was we knew yep. North Carolina looked good and then we knew it was going to take a while in these other states. So like all this, the information was out there. It's just not necessarily everyone understood what it was. And what Bannon said is, you know, not bad. I mean, I, I don't agree with it. I think it's I think it's it's divisive and unnecessary, but. That's if you're playing the media narrative, play into that. You knew it was going to take a while and you knew you're going to say crazy shit. And so, you know, that's how they want to play it. Okay, so we should dig into whether or not any of this is actually moving numbers, whether or not it's work, whether it's not, whether or not it's having the intended effect, right? So the committee is, we should just remind everybody, not the Department of Justice's investigation. It is not a criminal investigation. It is a political investigation. And Republicans are not participating, which means they have abdicated their responsibility. They've abdicated their right to present an alternative uh, viewpoint here of any of the facts, which means J6, like, 
these guys get to tell the story they want to tell and they're actually telling it masterfully. Like they're doing a really good job with the narrative. They, so they yeah. brought in a like former uh, network news I was producer hoping they would do that. So they did was, do that. Yes. Okay. That's why it's, it's going so, so much good. better than, any <laughs> than like anything else that comes out of Congress. But anyway, <laughs> that's a different story. It is made for TV. <laughs> Literally yeah. made for TV. So, so the question then is, is it changing public opinion? And at least one Republican has spoken, uh, who's spoken to the committee has said publicly that he's not going to vote for Donald Trump in 2024 uh, in, a, in a primary race, that is. And that's Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers. Um, he appeared before the committee at a public hearing in June. Uh, he recounted receiving calls from Trump and Giuliani urging Bowers to support their efforts to overturn the election in Arizona. Bowers told Deseret News that he does not believe Trump represents his party or its morals or platform. And he said, quote, that guy, Trump, is just, he's his own party. It's a party of intimidation and I don't like it, end quote. Um, in this latest interview, Bowers says he does not know what he will do if Trump wins the nomination. Um, and he's not the only one. There's a, there's a New York Times Siena College poll uh, out this week that has shown that under half of Republican voters said Donald Trump would be their preferred candidate if the 2024 Republican presidential primary was held today. Trump led the field with 49%. Um, 46% of Republicans said they'd vote for somebody else in the field, and 25% said they'd vote for DeSantis. So, Scott, I want to I wanna dig into the numbers, and I want you to tell us whether or not we should be reading, what we should be reading into the numbers, sure. because it does seem like... Um, you know, if you're, if you're on the prosecution side at DOJ and you're just watching this, which by the way, there's little to zero information being shared between Congress and DOJ. And I think DOJ is not very happy about that. Um, they didn't have any insight into Cassidy Hutch's assessment. They didn't get any of that material. So if you're, but if you're watching this as an outsider, you think, okay, the legal liability for Trump seems to be building here. There's more fire than, than just smoke, Right. Is that translating into public opinion shifts to the extent that Republicans are even hearing about this? So short answer to that is not really. Okay. Um, and let me break that down. Okay. And I think it, Lucy might appreciate this. If I got, if I had a candidate who's coming up for a presidential election and they were at 49% of the primary electorate and I knew it was going to be a 10 to 15 person field, I'd be like, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I, and I understand. Yeah. I understand the sentiment of the poll. They're like, wow, he used to be in the '60s. Now he's 49. I was like, yeah. that's fine. I'm going to give some up. Yeah. But I'm still in a 10, 12, 13 person field. If I got 49 percent of the voters, I'm going to win, and I'm going to win by a lot. And so I, I think that's that's one of the things there. It's all you know. Numbers can say a lot of things, but if we interpret them how they are actually going to play out, especially that one, that's 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 one take to take into account, and also take into account. You know, Decision Desk HQ did a poll with News Nation a couple of weeks ago, right after the first big 20 million Nielsen rating, you know, J6 hearing. And what it showed was is mostly Republicans think it's kind of a sideshow. Democrats love it. Well, guess what? We knew how they were going to vote anyway. And, you know, 20 million people, there are more people watching an NCIS new episode than watch that. So, like, it's a big deal if this is what you read and listen to and you've got a strong opinion on it. But it remains to be seen what it's going to do to those casual, I vote only every presidential, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And at least in the primaries, I, I don't necessarily know. I mean, I hear what the, the guy says in Arizona, but like, 
you know, let's see what they say in South Carolina, New Hampshire, right? Yeah. 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 So to take this in two parts, that race that you're talking about of Rusty Bowers, he's Mm -hmm. running for the state Senate. He is running against a complete lunatic named David Farnsworth, who literally believes that uh, the 2020 election, the, the, the theft of the 2020 election is the devil's work. I mean, this guy is crazy. Uh, but that race is an outlier. That race is an outlier. And Rusty Bowers has a very, very narrow lane. And that is his best chance of staying in the state legislature. By the way, he's he's moving over to the state Senate. That race is an outlier because it's a lot like Utah. That race is a heavy LDS district. Both Bowers and Farnsworth are Mormons and very involved in their communities. Uh, and that is a sector. It's 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 a ra- it's a district that's mostly in Maricopa County, where sixty percent of the votes in Arizona are. That is a a race in an, an area of Arizona that is very reflective of you know when people are like, wow, how is Evan McMullen surging in Utah? Or like, oh my gosh, how does Utah have these sort of like really sensible conservative politics? We like a lot of it is the interaction between the faith community there, the Church of Latter-day Saints, and Republican operatives. And the fact that that is a very powerful cohort of Republicans in especially Western states, and they really do not like Trump, and they really do not like indecency, and Trump is very Mm -hmm. indecent. And so I think for Bowers at this point, he's testified in Congress now. Donald Trump, at the behest of Kerry Lake— a lunatic we'll get Who to we're later, gonna get to. <laughs> has endorsed three three people running for state legislature. I've been saying this. Trump yeah. is endorsing people for state, state legislative races. Have been. Three people in Arizona, including Bauer's opponent, Farnsworth. So at this point, the only lane for Farnsworth to retain his role in the legislature in, in a race that is on August 2nd is to just double down on the trying to get to turn out Republican primary voters who don't like indecency, right? There's no yeah. other lane. He's not going to be able to outflank Farnsworth as right wing. So could this be repeatable in other places? Yes. But is it is it like reflective of a trend that right. we could extrapolate or like hope to see or in Ohio or Pennsylvania? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think so. And the second piece of that at the, to what you began with uh, is that I think that One thing I'm really concerned about, and I think Scott's points are super well taken, but from my perspective, even if the Republican Party and Republican voters begin to separate from Trump, he's just one vessel, and they're not pulling away from other vessels (laughs) that I think are uh, very, very happy and poised to pursue a lot of the same kind of work as Republican politicians— that made people like us yeah. decide to leave the Republican Party. A lot of the same, by any means necessary, work. Yeah. So if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm turned off by Trump, so I'm going to vote for Ron DeSantis. From my perspective, that's not a great outcome. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Not a great outcome. So the the numbers, I agree. The, the what I kind of want to tease apart here is uh, so what Scott, what you what you laid out is I think obviously true. This doesn't mean Trump is not going to win the nomination if he wants it. If he runs and he wants it, he gets it. Right? I still bet a lot of money on him winning still it. Still bet a lot of money on him winning yeah. it, obviously. At Predict It, you could go make yeah. a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, actually, you can't. You can't, actually. everyone knows he's going to win the nomination. Win, right? Not on that market. Not taking those bets. <laughs> However, what I, what, I, what I want to ask you is this, right? 
clearly the poll shows some erosion of support from Donald Trump, even if it's temporary, right? We could call this a blip in, in time because of J6 or because of the Supreme Court's decisions or whatever, right? But if that erosion holds, forget about the primary. Let's say he is the nominee. Is that erosion enough for a strong Democratic candidate to peel off more votes in a general. Does that, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Does that signal a willingness to depart and maybe switch sides again like they did in 2020? And so we we were in the Lincoln Project 2020, we we're talking about peeling off two to 4% of Republican voters, right? If there, if he's softened by even 4%, I think this poll had 16% Republicans peeling off of him. Does that, does that erosion of support, is it soft? Is it hard? Is it real? Can it be, can it be, you know, mushed over to the Democratic side in a general. Well, so what's interesting is, is it's hard to answer that question. It's like picking not this year's Super Bowl winner. It's like picking two Super Bowl winners in future. But like what president- I'm trying to offer our left-leaning audience a little sliver (laughs) of hope, Scott. (laughs) You know, look, here's what I would say. Probably this is not probably a big enough sliver that you want, but I think it's true is let's assume that the macroeconomic environment today is what it's like in 2024, high inflation, you know, even if we had high employment, you know, maybe unemployment comes, you know, maybe unemployment starts getting bad. Like, think about the messaging of the Republican Party. It is it has switched a lot because of Donald Trump in the last four or five years. It has become the party of the populist, um, for better or for worse. You know, we look at it in trade. We look at it in the demographic cross-section types of things. And Donald Trump, from 2016 to 2020, he got 14 million more voters than he did the second time around. Like, he didn't lose voters between elections, he got more. He got more. And so, you know, whether you like him or not, the message does resonate mm-hmm. and it's resonating a, a, a across a cross-section of people. And so just imagine, this is very qualitative, which is outside of my uh, expertise, <laughs> but imagine inflation sitting between five and 8%, unemployment's up a little bit. We still got high gas prices and the economy's probably going to get better, but it isn't better yet. You can imagine what Donald Trump's going to say on the trail. Mm-hmm. Hey, and it resonates. Yeah, he's good right. at reading the room. He's good at saying what the people want to hear, whether you can do it or not. And so, you know, that's why I think the numbers are down, but doesn't mean they're doesn't gone mean, forever. Right. And, and so he's sh- proven that he can get people who thought yeah. he was a joke. Yeah. They thought he was they a joke was in a joke. 2015. And he changed their minds. And he got yeah. 61 million people to think he wasn't like that. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't discount that. Yeah. And it's especially worrisome when, in addition to the fact that his reelect, so to speak, well, election to be elected again, it's not a reelect. He's not the president. <laughs> not a reelect. <laughs> That's a cycle. That's that's two cycle. I mean, it's we have to get through this. We have cycle to get through first. this cycle first, right? Yeah. And the, the one of the things that I know to be true is that the Republican base, right? Even yes, they can be motivated by economic issues, all of that. They are also highly motivated by culture warrior issues. That can be mitigated by Democrats not acting like complete weirdos Mm -hmm. and like people who don't speak the same language. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats seem to have decided that their best approach now is just to really run left. They're just going to really run left. So another hearing that got a little less coverage this week was the Senate hearing on the kind of aftermath of the Dobbs decision. Like, what does this look like in a post-Roe world? 
And even though there were plenty of unforced errors on the pro-life, so-called pro-life side, the anti-abortion side, for instance, Eric Swalwell asked a, a woman who was a anti-abortion activist person about the the rape of the young child mm-hmm. in the Midwest and and you know whether it would be appropriate for that child to have an abortion. And she said, well, that's not an abortion, right? That's crazy. But then Josh Hawley and others were questioning pro-choice, pro-abortion access folks, and they were saying stuff that is so out of step with the American people. Like they were saying things like, I mean, Josh Hawley and others were basically saying, um, you know, what about uh, a person deciding to have an elective abortion at 40 weeks, right? The day before they're going to be induced or whatever. I'm paraphrasing. And obviously the answer should be, that would be despicable. We should would not support that. That's totally insane. And their response was like, well, that's really not happening. <sighs> and it would be disappointing. And it's like Democrats, wow. just most of America is pro-choice. America yeah. is looking for, yeah. they want, they want the Clinton era safe, legal, and rare. Yeah. That's what most people want. And Democrats are so fixated on doing whatever they can to alienate normal people. And so I don't mean to go off on no, the side, but I'm I don't think that we can it. look at the January yeah. 6th hearings and Trump and in a vacuum no. because the Democrats are the Republicans' best PR team many, many times. So so it's going to be very, very easy for Republicans to, to generate support in economic arguments in part because even if people don't really buy that inflation is Joe Biden's fault or Nancy Pelosi's fault— Democrats do everything they can to make people feel really uncomfortable and weird all the time. That's a perfect segue, actually, to the next to, to our next topic, which is the, this the midterm map and the issues. Like, so the midterms are on the horizon now, um, and I want to talk about a few of the major factors that we're looking at. Right. So Gallup regularly polls on the most important problems in America, um, uh, and in June, the top three issues were high cost of living and inflation at eighteen percent. That's number one. Number two, the government slash poor leadership. Um, also at 18%. And the number three is the economy in general, number number 13, uh, at 13%. So the polling on the inflation problem um, may even get worse because that was in June. And just yesterday, we had the new CPI print out. Higher which is than we thought. Higher than we thought. <laughs> Again, hey, who would have thought? Why? Maybe we should start thinking it will get higher than we think. Yeah. 9.1% this time, a new 40-year high. Uh, and... The uh, costs for gasoline, groceries, uh, dental care all surged last month. Um, the continued rise shows that inflation hasn't peaked yet, number one. And also, uh, Robert Frick, who's a corporate economist at Navy Federal Credit Union, noted that one of the particular concerns was the broadening of inflation. So it is not just energy and food prices now. We're not we're talking about domestic goods and services, including clothes and housing and vehicles. So hotels, hotels, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. The bottom line is like inflation is here and it's everywhere. It's not transitory and it's not just in one sector. It's just a part of life. Now prices for everything are, are, are going up. So Scott, what's the right way to think about the measuring of voter attitudes toward inflation that is actually instructive for behavior and expected behavior of voters? Because 
when I see numbers like 18% on, on, you know, or 13% on quote unquote, the economy in general, or 18% on inflation slash, you know, cost of living, what are, what are voters, what is the, what's the instrument trying to measure and what are, what is the, what is the signal that we're actually getting from voters in terms of what they understand about what they're experiencing? Because something Lucy's met, brought up a couple of times before is this, the distance, the, 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 the paradox of people feeling like their situation is great. Tell me if I'm getting this right, but that the overall, everything else is bad. My situation is good. Everything else is bad around me. So, or like more specifically, a thing that you see come up in a lot of surveys I've read recently is someone's asked, like, how do you feel like insert thing, Mm -hmm. the state of public education? And then they're like, terrible the sky is falling down (laughs) and then they say how do you feel about your kid's teacher like really like my kid's teacher (laughs) yeah so yeah so i lay all that at your feet help us to untangle the the web of like understanding voters attitudes around this stuff yeah it's funny you bring up the the question thing if you know the default answer now is do you like something no and then I'll think, oh, maybe I do like it, right? Like, and there's a whole survey design. There are people with PhDs who study the psychology of how you ask those types of questions, which yeah. is why when you look at this stuff, you got to be careful. But what I think when you look at inflation, there is actually a real, I'm not an economist, but I like to read some things about it. Like when you see this 9.2% inflation, like we saw today, it's actually not encompassing what most oh. Americans are experiencing. Oh, welcome to my soapbox. We yeah. can get on it together if you yeah. want. I've done this yeah. routine a few times yeah. on the show and, about how this about the, yeah. the CPI is basically a fraud. We'll, we can come yeah. back to that. And, and yeah. maybe I, 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 I don't know enough to call it a fraud, but I know enough to say I'm like, well, if it doesn't incorporate rent and, you know, 30, 40 percent of Americans are renting, like, are we really capturing the pain here? Right. Right. Stuff like that. Or like, you know, well, we don't we don't we don't track the cost of TVs because they're a luxury good. Yeah, yeah, but not really. Like, yeah, you need right. a TV, whether you're poor or not, and yeah. you want one. So, like, you know, that hurts when the TV's 20% more at Costco or Walmart or wherever. Yeah. You, Walmart sells more TVs than anybody. Yeah. But, like, those the, type of things. The way I have no. described it for shorthand purposes yeah. for listeners to understand is the CPI is a, a, a measure of inflation that is as low as the government can possibly make it while keeping a straight face yeah. while manipulating the basket yeah. of goods that it's supposed to represent. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to keep that number as low yeah. as possible because it's basically a performance indicator for yeah. their job. Show me the, the CPI economy. in hotel rooms. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> yeah. sure it's double. Right. Um, or flights yeah. at least doubled. So <laughs> I, it's funny, like I, here, here's at least from the polling, which I can speak a little bit from. Yeah. Inflation is the number one issue, whether you're Republican, Democrat, whether you vote a lot or a little. Right. Like Mm. when you just do registered voters, not people who vote a lot, they're like, yeah, it's inflation. And in the beginning, you're like, okay, well, it's on the news. That's why they're talking about it. But when it's week in and week out and then you start asking some smart questions like, do you think you're paying more for groceries? Not are you? Because perception is reality. Do you think you're paying more? Do you think you're paying more? Do you think it's bad? Of course, everyone thinks it's bad to pay. But like all of a sudden we're seeing the perception. People are like, I'm paying more. I, I, you know, it's more for eggs. It's more for that. And, and, and I think that has yet to sink in. And that's where I think, and I think part of the reason is this is me just pontificating is unemployment is low. So people are like, yeah, it's more expensive for me to buy a TV and I'll put a little more on my credit card. Cause I cleared my credit card with my stimulus check last year, but I got a job. So I think it'll get way worse if we start seeing layoffs and unemployment tick up and things like that. Cause people right now are like, it's expensive, but I got room on my credit card and I'll still go and do it. And so that's where I think the voters are, are, are looking at it is they're like, we know it's a problem. 
but I'm still employed and I still got all that kind of stuff. And I think we'll see them, you know, we, we will see some change in voters' attitudes. And it'll be interesting, you know, just as a former political campaign junkie, you got it. You, you know, these candidates have to say something yeah. despite their inability to do anything. Because, like, look, inflation and all these things, the Fed's got one button they can push. And after that, we're along for the ride. Right. It's, I, you know, I don't care what anyone's going to say. I mean, they can say whatever they want, but it's not going to, yeah. you know, it's not really going to do anything. So I, I, the voters are, you know, they're reacting, at least in the polling. And I think, you know they have yet to feel the pain. Hopefully they don't. Hopefully we don't have an employment go down, but that's that's probably the other shoe to drop. And, we, and as far as messaging goes, I think we've started to see Democrats begin to recognize, a lot of them still don't like to talk about it at all. They don't like to say the I word, but there there has been we, more- We gotta of an, call it what it is. Because guess call what, it voters are calling what it is. Well, here's the, voters are calling what it is. And here's the thing you need to understand yeah. about inflation, right? It hurts the poorest people the most. Yeah. It yeah. hurts the it hurts the lower socioeconomic class the most. Yeah. And actually, if you own property, if you own real assets, if you own a house or a condo, or you own or you have a stock portfolio, you're actually benefiting, or you're at least along for the ride with the asset inflation rate yeah. that is happening at that asset class. Yeah. Like if you own something real, you're at least holding on to your value as prices rise. Because you're yeah. right. That doesn't mean you're yeah. making money, but on paper you are. Your nominal rate, right? But it's definitely but yeah. if you're if you don't own those things. If you're renting and if you're buying groceries, you're actually getting hurt more by this phenomenon than than other people. And I, that's where I want to get into like the demographic shift that's happening. So um, unless you have something to say about mass. Okay. So um, one of the other major factors here are the, the demographic shifts within both parties. Uh, New York Times, Siena College uh, put out a poll this week, showed Democrats now have a bigger advantage among white college graduates than they do with non-white voters. During the Trump administration, Republican support among suburban voters dropped to 35% in 2020, uh, and that was after Trump won that demographic in 2016. Democrats hold a 20-point advantage over Republicans among white college-educated voters. But now, and Mike and I have talked about this at length, they are in a statistical dead heat among Hispanics. And just to put the size of that swing into context, a few years ago in 2018, uh, in 2018 midterms, that is, Hispanic voters backed Democrats by nearly 50-point margin. In 2016, the congressional elections, Dems lost college-educated white voters. I want to play this clip of Mike Madrid from an episode we did back in April. Yeah, and one one of the overlaps of the young demographic is the Hispanic vote which the Democrats have relied on overwhelmingly because it's been a non-white voter and that has historically done performed very well for the Democrats. But as when, you know, that we've talked about this at length on the, on the show, there's a shift away from uh, the Hispanic electorate is moving towards a more Republican uh, vote. And that, that creates a conundrum for the turnout model for Democrats is where, where do you go? Where do you message? How do we get turnout of our younger voters when so many of them are Hispanic and a lot of them are trending away? It creates a big opening for Republicans if they're smart about it. It's a difficulty for Democrats. I know that they've been trying to address this problem and there's some internal challenges with, with, with that message shift, but it will be determinative. Okay, so Lucy, I am dying for your thoughts on the message shift and how how Democrats can begin to speak to pullback support among the working class and in particular the Hispanic vote. Um, and then Scott, I'm really interested in like, okay, the Democrats turnout model, like what needs to change? How do they actually win if this trend holds true? Because uh, otherwise they're going to have big, big problems. So anyway, how are you? How are you thinking about this? 
Well, I actually think the Democratic Party's problem with uh, communities of color is actually even worse than we've teed it up here. I was I've spent some time recently with um, black faith leaders in places in states where they really Democrats really rely on the black faith leaders and black communities voting for them. And the way they describe their relationship with the Democratic Party, but I had someone tell me last week that he feels like the black community is in an abusive relationship with the Democratic Party because there's this assumption that they're always going to vote for Democrats. These were his words, abusive relationship with the Democratic Party. There's an assumption that, that, you know, they're just a lock for Democrats and they kind of like show up during election years when they, you know, when ballots go out or when it's time to vote. And then all the things that they claim they're going to be doing for these communities, they just then don't do. And then they come back two years later or four years later or whatever. And that's kind of it. And that's a community that in among person I was trying to is actively asking for things in the agenda that then they feel like mm. never materializes. Now, in the case of the Latino community, I think that the Democratic Party has completely misread the Latino community. They treat them like a monolith, which at this point is not updated. They presume, and Lene has talked about yeah. this, they presume that these must all be like open borders people. Right. They're not. <laughs> they presume that they must all be really socially liberal. They're, They're not. not. Right. They also just miss these things about the Latino community that I think is really, for many people in the Latino community, essential to the fabric of their culture, including entrepreneurship, the idea. Most surprisingly, most communities of color don't want to be talked down to and treated like what they need is another government handout. Weird. Most people, most Americans, white or not, want to be treated like they can realize their own destiny and vision. And Democrats don't talk to Latinos in that way at all. And so I, I think that that's one big piece of it. And in terms of the overlap that that Mike was talking about in that clip where he was also talking about how do you also approach young voters yeah. in this way too, one of the things that is has been very interesting in the fallout post, post-SCOTUS decision around abortion is how many young people I have felt like, well, maybe this is going to really be a catalyst in the midterms. Could be. Don't worry. Democrats will screw that up. But (laughs) a lot of young people are also saying, even if they do have a more progressive view on that issue, they're like, well, what the hell have Democrats done for us? Right? And so I think that a lot of the Democratic agenda really just presumes in election cycles that these people are just going to show up for them. People are tired of being counted on that way. And Mm. that is definitely true in the Latino community. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, Scott, let's, first of all, the demographic (laughs) shift, the turnout model, and like you probably ought to do a bit on like the education gap as one of the, basically one of the biggest indicators, I think, of this um, shift, right? Yeah, well, let me, so here's the great, I never recommend doing anything just how the math pencils out. Yeah. But let's do it just because it's podcast <laughs> and we can say crazy shit on here. So let's say you take the the New York Times Siena poll numbers yeah. at face value. Which 50, by the way, if you agree or disagree with it, tell I, I haven't us, agree. I think I think they do I think they're very good pollsters. I think Nate Cohn and those guys know exactly what they're doing. Okay. Um so I, I would take stock in it. But so let's take those numbers, let's take them at face value, and let's start applying it to various states and various districts. And all of a sudden, if you straight line some of that 
over 10 years, all of a sudden, California becomes competitive for the Republicans, Oof. right? Like, and those types of things. And Texas is a, is a pipe dream because, you know, five, six years ago, the Democrats were like, oh, we're going to flip Texas blue, like those types of things. And so I, I, I'm i not saying California, but like if you take the math and you put it forward 10 years, which no one should do, but let's yeah. do it because it's funny. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Um, and we at least believe the baseline number that yeah. that's the direction this is going. Now, now that the numbers are out there, you know, stuff will happen and both sides will fight over it. But like, that is the trend I think most people are are missing is is you know I, I we can talk about why the Republicans are taking it and I I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah the insight there but let's just take the math as it is is Republican Party is not dead you know they're right. not in the wilderness like everyone thinks right. they are right. um and they are expanding the tent you know it's kind of funny like I remember reading the the you know the autopsy report and things like oh, that the dog and pony show yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't remember you, that one you, you could, could do a whole episode oh, yeah. on, the, on the autopsy <laughs> but at least as far as it concerns Hispanics they they did it you know yeah. and the New York Times yeah, they did. provided the yeah. data to prove they did it yeah now <laughs> so I I think that's the interesting part now the, the education split, that is fascinating in, in a lot of ways. And it, it just goes to show like there's going to be political demographers 20 years from now minting PhDs on the political shift from when Donald Trump went down that escalator in 2015 to when he lost. And we'll see what the next chapter looks like in 2020, because the whole makeup, the Republican Party has switched. Um, and that you look at that education gap and you can draw a lot of conclusions around it, but, you know, factually speaking, the, the, the makeup has shifted quite a bit. Um, and I think it'd be surprised everyone to learn is most people in America do not have a college degree, right? right? Like, and I think, right. I imagine many of your listeners think, or some of your listeners might think that's the case, but that's not the case. Yeah. And, and that is a good demarcation. No, line they're here. all very smart. They all have they college all, degrees. They all have college degrees. And <laughs> or that's they're why well would, on their way. <laughs> or they're, they're well on their way. way. That's why I would encourage you, like, you know, what's the phrase? Go touch grass. Like, let's go to a different <laughs> city than the big yeah. ones, you know, yeah. at a Starbucks next to the guy working on his second PhD. Yeah. Um, you know, like Scott, <laughs> people getting their second PhDs don't go to Starbucks. They Fair get point. pour overs. Yeah. Yeah. Pour overs. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, it, it's fascinating to me, but I, I think that's, that's here to stay. And I think, you know, let's, let's say that another demographic thing is I understand like the, the line is, is you know, white men are rapidly decreasing in America and they are, but they're still over 50%. Like they're still a huge voting block. Like let's not diminish, like, okay, Hispanics are the fastest growing, but they're still half the, less than half the size of the African, or I'm sorry, of the, of the white Caucasian. So we all know what it'll look like 10 or 15 years from now, but like, we've got an election coming up in a few months and another one in a couple of years, like focus on the present here. And I think that's where the Republican party has gotten pretty good at. They're like, we're not thinking about 15 years from now. We're thinking, how do I get votes today? Yeah. You know what Lucy said about the Hispanic community? When you look at the qualitative focus group data, which I think is fair, like they'll tell you, they're like, yeah, we we don't think a border wall is racist, right? We just think we We got, we came here, you know, yeah, should yeah. it be easier for them? But they don't think it's racist. They don't think these things are. A lot of them are faith-based. They came over here, mm-hmm. Catholics, and yeah. this is what they are. Like, I, and, and then to your point about entrepreneurism, that's huge in Texas. Huge, yeah. Right? Like, the Republicans win along the border because Republic, or because Hispanic voters are like, yeah, yeah, I want a business. I want lower taxes. I want a government that stays on my branch. I don't want yeah. horrible, yeah. arduous licensing rules. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be able to write off my yeah. equipment investments. Yeah. I mean, these sound yeah. like, these issues sound kind of, uh, I, I guess, yeah. boring, arcane. But these no, are things that act, they yeah. are real yeah. life, right? Yeah. And yeah. the Republicans are like, we're here with you. Yeah. Yeah. And Democrats are like, 
join us for our culture wars. Our, uh, you know, it's a problem. Yeah. You are yeah. an aggrieved racial minority, right? <laughs> Which they don't identify as. as yeah, they, don't, Mike. they would say, right. uh, they, I would imagine qualitative focus groups when you ask these yeah. folks, like, do you feel like you're, like, again, it's, some of them might see yes, and I and some of them absolutely are, but a lot of them are just like, yeah, yeah, but but can we can we work on the taxes thing? Right. Or can you like yeah. get me my license for my, you know, or yeah. they they're gun owners. Hispanics are gun owners. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they care about these things. Yeah. And as Democrats lean into these issues like gun control yeah. and abortion rights, they're yeah. picking up college educated voters. So you mentioned that the Republican Party is composed differently than it used to be, but that also means the Democratic Party is. Yeah. There's a shift happening, there's a realignment happening, and the yeah. Democratic Party is becoming more uh white and more college educated. Yeah. So with working class voters, like across the racial groups are now moving towards Republicans. Yeah. And, and Axios says that inflation is accelerating this, uh, this trend. So the question is really, can it be slowed or stopped? And it sounds to me like, well, it could. If, Demo if Scott, if you were sitting at the National Democratic Headquarters, which as we've talked about on the show before, is by its bylaws, written as an inversion of the Republican National Committee's bylaws, which means that the Democratic National Committee is the mothership that dictates to all the all the other peripheral ships how they're going to do things, right? Top-down structure, um, the, the RNC, the Republican National Committee bylaws, upside down the other way. There's other a way socialist around. joke there somewhere. There, is a, there are plenty of jokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the question is, if you're at the headquarters and you get to set Democratic strategy and you're like, you recognize this shift is happening— where do they need to improve and how? Like, if you had to put it in a nutshell, like, hey, guys, do this. And you might be able to staunch the bleed. Start reading your own top-line polling and everyone else's top-line polling, right? Like, and what I, what I mean by that is it is about economy. It is about inflation. It is about taxes. It is about these things. It is not about what pronouns your kid uses at school. And I'm not saying don't fight about those things, but that's not what most of these people are, you know, that's not what they're thinking. It's, and people can walk and chew down walk and chew gum at the same time. You can care about more than one issue at a time. It's just the order, I think, of which the Democratic Party is is caring about them is it's a few issues at once. And I know there's people who are going to say, well, no, no, we don't just care about that. But like, if you if you look at just the focus groups of people who don't identify as Republican or Democrat, they're like, they, they look at Republicans and they're like, yeah, those are the crazy people, MAGA, border wall. And they look at the Democrats, they're like, oh, they're those 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 whiny people just talking about pronouns. They're going to cancel me. Yeah, they're going to cancel me. And, and again, neither of those are, are fair <laughs> characterizations, but I go back to perceptions reality. Yes. Right? Like yeah. change, change your perception so that yeah. you can change your own reality. A couple of weeks ago, when Mike Madrid and Liz Gilbert were on the roundup, we talked about a very risky strategy that Democrats used successfully in Illinois uh, in meddling in the GOP primary to set J.B. Pritzker up to run against the weaker, crazier Republican candidate there. Um, we noted that it worked. We noted that it was very risky and it paid off in that case. But now they're trying to do the same thing in Arizona, but it is even riskier. And this time, I think they're making a huge mistake. So Carrie Lake is a Republican who Lucy mentioned earlier. She's an election denier. She's backed by Donald Trump and she's running for governor. Her opponent in the Republican primary is Karen Robeson. And Robeson has been getting a lot of traction over the last week after picking up the endorsement of current Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, who is not crazy and who is actively opposing Trump candidates. In fact, this race is seen as a proxy fight between him and Trump. And she also got the endorsement of former Congressman Matt Salmon, who dropped out of the race. So on Monday, Axios reporter Jeremy Duda tweeted a press release from the Arizona Democratic Party 
thanking Karen Robeson for her prior contributions to Democratic candidates. The quote goes like this. While Robeson uses her millions to buy TV ads and hide her true self, voters just aren't buying what she's selling. And it's no surprise, this is precisely the kind of political hypocrisy that aggravates people. As the Republican primary for governor continues to stir toxic infighting, the Arizona Democratic Party will always be grateful for Robeson's longtime support in helping elect Democrats up and down the ballot, including this November. (laughs) End quote. So Democrats are trying to get Lake elected in the August 2nd primary because they think the Dem candidate, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, can beat her. We should also remind listeners that Arizona is going to be a pivotal state in this election and in 2024, uh, and it could ultimately determine who wins the presidency and who controls the Senate. Large Hispanic vote, too. Large Hispanic vote! Yes! So, you need to tell us about how you're thinking about this strategy, Lucy. And uh, <laughs> the strategy is horrendous. Yeah, it is very I'm, deeply cynical. I'm also slightly optimistic that it won't work because why are they using the Arizona Democratic Party as the vehicle for this message? Like, what is that about? <laughs> That's weird. Do they think that, like, really, uh, you know, hardcore Republican, high affinity Republican? primary voters are like, are reading press I'm going to go read this press release from the Arizona Democratic guy. Who knows what that's about? It's yeah. very weird. Yeah. So this is happening all over the country. This is yes. a lot of, Good point. Th- this is happening all over the country. It this is, is Pennsylvania. Yeah, they're doing it all over. They're making this, they're, they're really playing with fire. And it's, it is deeply cynical and it's also deeply offensive because I think that if you care about democracy, then when you are looking at a battleground state and you're thinking about how to spread your resources, if you're a national democratic operative who's in the room making some of those decisions, how should we spend our resources? You have to be willing to say, okay, it is still better for us as Americans, not as partisan Democrats, to uh, have some states, if we can only, if we're spread thin and we can only spread ourselves, you know, across, meaningfully across X number of states, then we're just going to have to kind of like take the the L, but mitigate the L by taking the L in scenarios where, in this case, Robeson is surging in Arizona, where, yeah, we don't want to have a Republican governor, but it's better to have a Republican governor who is not promoting the big lie and is not like a press a, a publicist for 2,000 mules or Dinesh D'Souza <laughs> or whatever, than to have a Carrie Lake. In the case of the actual Carrie Lake dynamic, I mean— Here's another big problem. This yeah. is uh, here's here's what I have been thinking. This, this is week. a lot of big problems. <laughs> so many problems, and Carrie Lake is one. <laughs> Republicans tend to be malevolent toward democracy, yeah. but they are fantastic at politics. Democrats currently tend to be benevolent toward democracy, but they are terrible at politics. Mm-hmm. Carrie Lake is going to beat Katie Hobbs in that matchup. Katie Hobbs is a super weak candidate. Katie Hobbs is no J.B. Pritzker. Let me tell you a little bit about Katie Hobbs. She is Secretary of State. She gained fame. She had a fame moment during 2020 because she, and and after, because of the crazy audit stuff, cyber ninjas, we all remember. Mm -hmm. She is a very uncompelling candidate who is only really in the running for governor because there's kind of a thing in Arizona, which is like the secretary of state could become, is it waiting in the wings? But also because she had this national media moment. She's a terrible campaigner. She literally in the last year has 
had a public apology and has been the subject of a discrimination lawsuit for firing a young black woman who worked for her when she was in the state legislature. And this has been a huge thing in Arizona. And she also is doing Trumpian things herself, like refusing to debate. What? She won't debate Marco Lopez, who is an, could have could have been another Democratic candidate for governor in Arizona, who's like a former Obama, Napolitano guy, incredibly compelling candidate, Hispanic, former mayor of Nogales, like very good candidate. Katie Hobbs has refused to debate Democratic him. Hispanic candidate in Arizona? What? Right. What? No. Wait. <laughs> Can't have that. <laughs> Must have, you know— the Karen of this race is not Karen <laughs> Taylor Robeson. The Karen of this race is Katie Hobbs. Won't debate is fi- like discriminating against young black women, has all kinds of problems, has a baby voice, which I know sounds like a small thing, but is a huge problem on the trail. She's behaving terribly. I won't go on. The upshot is— <laughs> the, upshot, the bottom line is she's not going to win. She's bottom not going to win. Democrats are, as you she's said, not win. playing with fire. They are playing with fire. And this is really dangerous. They are playing with fire. Yeah. And it is—this is one thing if you have a compelling Democratic candidate— Katie Hobbs is not that. And it's also one thing if you are, you know, if you are have a Republican strategist behind you who knows what they're doing. They like, I'm yeah, sorry, but Democratic strategists Morris. don't. Have, sorry, <laughs> but like, this is an indictment of Democratic strategists generally because they don't know how to do this shit and do it well. Like, anyway, Scott, go ahead. W- one thing, and this is a little bit outside of my lane, but this is my commentary on all of it. I, in a former life, I understand the need to win. When you're a political strategist, you want to do everything legally that you can to win. So I understand why they were supporting the candidate, but philosophically, if you're the party that's calling it the big lie and you're like, we don't support this and this is out of bounds, this is going against the fabric of democracy, which, okay, I actually generally believe in that. I, I believe there, you know, we probably shouldn't be attacking the, 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 the democratic structure without any proof. How can you on one hand say that and then support the candidate? I understand what the, I, I don't know the strategist, but I know what they're telling themselves before they go to sleep at night is like anything to win. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. But at least be, you know, intellectually honest about what you're doing. And, you know, it just takes for me and I'm not yeah. a swing voter um, and no one probably is like this. It takes away the whole potency of the we're the party for yeah, democracy and good government. Yeah. The, the anything yeah. to win is yeah. the same yeah. on both. Like yeah. th- that that sort of uh, maxim leads to the same thing, regardless of your yeah. regardless of the direction you're pulling yeah. in. Right. Yeah. The like means are not like whatever. Let's have some intellectual consistency. Yeah. At yeah. least, you know, from the party that's Yeah. Or at least just very... be like really fucking careful what you yeah. are doing. Get a C four vehicle <laughs> C4 for God's vehicle. sake. Yeah. Like get the secret money behind the paywall, disguise it all so nobody There's knows what you're operas. doing. Like at least at least do that. At least like hide it. <sighs> okay. Uh now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar. Scott, what do you have for us? Ooh, what am I watching? Yeah. Um, Something that could impact our politics that we're not paying enough attention to. Ooh, that is a good question. Mm. I was saying, I just watched the Showtime thing on Uber. <laughs> the oh. whole Travis Kalala, you know, with the oh, Uber yeah. Yeah. this week. Yeah. It's yeah. like fascinating. I read the book, but the show is just so much better. Um, I, I think a little bit what we talked about earlier, inflation, right? Again, I'm an am- a very amateur economist. And you look at inflation, you look at where this is going. This is not a quick fix. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, A, is it going to get worse? And if it's going to get worse, how long does it take? And then when you look at some of this historical stuff about it, you're just, okay, 6, 12, 18 months. All of a sudden that puts us into the Democratic primary cycle, Republican primary cycle. Like, 
I think I'm already look. I shouldn't say looking beyond the 2022 elections, but the news we're look, experiencing now, the economic factors we're experiencing now, I don't see them going away in three months or being fixed in three months. And so, what does that affect going down? So, pay attention to that news. And then, you know, I know you were in Ukraine, Ukraine in, recently. You wanted. To, I mean, we could be talking about international stuff. I mean, China's not still. Oh. They're still looking at Taiwan. You know, there's still a lot of you know international instability and things like that. So, all these news items you know, are going to affect the midterms and are going to be conversation pieces in the 2024 election, which my one last piece, this will blow some people's minds. If 2020 follows 2016's cadence, uh, Ted Cruz was the first Republican candidate to announce his candidacy. And I believe late November, early December, 2014. So if 2020 follows that, we are about four or five months away from the first Republican candidates announcing their candidacy for 2024. And just today, you know, Thursday, J- Donald Trump told Olivia Newsy, he's like, I know I'm going to run. The only question is when I'm going to announce this fall. And so these things are upon us. They're not next cycle. They are now. They're happening. I'm going to make one very, since you brought up the, the basically the credit swings, like the, the, yeah. the economy, like the the cycle now of, of inflation rates raising, being lower, like the, these are speeding up they're getting so much faster now that I think by possibly by 2024, when we're like deep into primary season, maybe after primary season, maybe a year or two later, I think we're the, 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 the tumult and the, uh, the volatility of the economy, including like the value of the dollar is going to get so bad that it's going to trigger a nationwide conversation about what the hell money is in the first place. I really well, do. You have to do the crypto. Oh, episode. we're doing it. Oh, we're doing it. Don't worry, Lucy's mom. It's coming. It's it, it really, but really, I think we're going to have a conversation about like what is this stuff, this paper that keeps changing value all the time. I think eventually we're going to get there. This so. week, the dollar, the the yes. inversion with the euro. Everybody, yeah. if you're into like, French goods, get on a plane Europe and go on buy, sale. Go buy <laughs> Chanel bags. Except no one can afford them because we're all no, spending so much on groceries. Damn it. No, the upside of all this of this back. <laughs> economic environment that we're in is that the dollar is actually really, really strong right now. Yeah. For now. Lucy, yeah. what are you watching? Well, one thing that I'm thinking about is something that we talked a little bit about when we had that conversation around the American Legislative Exchange Council, oh, yeah. State Policy Network. Federalism. Federalism. <laughs> which is that uh, a thing that is brewing in several states that I think is really having a moment amidst post-pandemic and post Uh, post-CRT, whatever the hell that thing is, is that many states have really made quick work, including in Arizona, but also thanks to some court decisions, other places, in massive expansion of what they call education savings accounts, which Mm. are uh, essentially school vouchers. As many people know, school vouchers were struck down years ago in many states based on something called the Blaine Amendment, which is a, a... a constitutional amendment that is in the state constitutions of a bunch of like progressive era states that says no money can go to, you know, like religious Religious schools, schools. which we just had a Supreme Court decision about. Yes. The education savings accounts makes a end run around that by moving the money to parents. Hmm. Um, But this is now that they're gaining universal expand, you know, expansion. So anyone could have one in this climate. I think There are a lot of problems with ESAs, by the way, including that in most places they have no transparency. So the money goes to the parents and then 
they can opt their kids out of the school system, but they're getting whatever the state share would be, you know, 7,000, 10,000, who knows. <laughs> and then we just never know what happens with these kids because there's never any testing in many of these places. It's, I used to work oh, on this issue. It's like, it is actually the thing that haunts me more than times that I wow. <laughs> attended events with birthers. <laughs> actually, this <laughs> from my Republican past is the thing that haunts me more. Anyway, I think it's a really interesting wedge issue. In yeah. in Arizona and some other places, they are the the uh, anti-voucher crowd is trying to get these kinds of things referred to the ballot, putting education on the election or on the general election ballot. As Scott could probably tell you, I think education is an issue that does not do well. It does not. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> but it's just an interesting dynamic. I, I'm. We're at the point in the cycle where we can start to see interesting wedge issues popping up that are a little bit non-traditional and not just like abortion, yeah. guns, inflation. Yeah. So keep an eye That's on that. That's a good one to watch. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where can everybody find you and send you hate mail on the internet, Scott? <laughs> Only Twitter. <laughs> Only Twitter. Scott Tranter, S. Tranter. Please nowhere else. That, that, that's what Twitter is for. Yeah. Lucy. I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Don't send Lucy hate mail. We love Lucy. I already get hate mail. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Ron Stuslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>